Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let Mom's Green Thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants, indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give Mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil just $8.97 at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. This episode is brought to you by AARP. 16 years from today, Greg Gerstner will finally land the perfect cannonball. Epic Splash. Unsuspecting Friends. A work of art only possible because Greg is already meeting all these same people at AARP volunteer and community events that keep him active and involved and help make sure his happiness lives as long as he does. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org local. Welcome into this special edition of the Golf Channel Podcast. I'm your host, Will Gray, and we're looking back today at some of the best moments and sounds from the year that was in 2017. It's been a lot of highlights over the last 12 months, and we had the privilege to sit down and talk with several of the biggest names as well as the decision makers in the world of golf. And we're going to start this year-end podcast with PJ Tour Player of the Year, Justin Thomas. Morning Drive host Gary Williams spoke with JT shortly after his win at the SBS Tournament of Champions about the early lessons he learned upon his arrival on tour and what would make the remainder of 2017 a great year. What do you do when you're not playing golf? Nothing. I do absolutely nothing and I love every second of it. I can sit on a couch and watch four seasons of Entourage like it's my job. I mean, I really can. I, I've, I just, I love just resting and doing nothing. I mean, I'll work out, try to work out a bunch when I'm home. You probably still weigh, what, 145, which is what you were listed at I, when I you were I might be rookie. up to 150 now. Really? I don't know. Yeah. You put on five. It was a good off season. Justin Thomas completes the Aloha Double. After winning a couple of the he's backed it up here at Wailai in Hawaii. Did it mean something different to win technically in the United States as opposed to winning twice overseas? It seems like each time it happens, I'm just getting, I'm getting beef about something, you know? It's like I couldn't win, uh, couldn't win in America, and now it's like I can't win on the mainland, so it's like, but uh, no, it's fine. I mean, I'm, it sure beats the alternative of saying I've never won before. You've got three wins. Nobody won more than three times last year. Do you think, though, getting back to, to patience and always being better than everybody else, that the way that you played early on in your career professionally was a byproduct of always knowing you were better than everybody else and you had to learn those lessons? Maybe. I don't, I don't want to say I knew that I was better than everyone else, but I thought I was. My rookie year, I was in the second or third to last group in L.A., and I played with Bubba and Angel, and I was two back. I mean, I was playing great. I had obviously a great chance to win the tournament. And they hit it out of bounds on one at Riviera, which is just so far offline. And it's like the easiest hole we play all year. And I'm walking off there with six. You can't prepare for that. You, you have to go through those situations. It's one thing the night before, you're like, yeah, I'm ready. I can't wait to play with Bubba. I can't play, wait to play with Von Hell. You know, major champions. And uh, I'm excited for the challenge. But then once you get in that first tee and you haven't been there before, it's nerve-wracking. Uh, just like it'll be... You know, when I'm in contention in a major or I'm playing in a Ryder Cup and President's Cup, I'll be nervous, uh, but it's a good nervous. It's what you play for. You have a lot of good friends in your peer group. One in particular is Jordan Spieth. Are you as close as we think you are? Yeah, uh, it's the thing about Jordan is it's um, he's he's not the person that, you know, you're going to be talking to every day. He's not the best communicator. You know, he, he's going to kind of. He's, he's a person you're trying to get a hold of him sometimes. It's tough to get a hold of him. And, and it's not, you know, it's not because he doesn't like the person. It's just that's, you know, it's just how he is. And he's definitely one of my closest friends on tour. And I'm just glad to be starting to be known as me and not his friend. Best at their best. Is there one player you could say definitively when they're at their best, that person is the best? And if so, who is it? Jordan's short game is ridiculous. I would put him up against probably anybody in the world, same with P. Reed. But they don't have that that 320 carry, you know, when they want it like J. Day or DJ has. And I think J. Day is, he's really, really impressive. But so, I mean, so is Rory. I mean, it's just, the biggest thing is they have that distance that 
that some guys don't have. And when you have that distance and when you're on, it's just so hard not to make a lot of birdies. But then again, I haven't shown the world my best. And I think when I'm at my best, um, I'm, I'm really hard to beat too. So um, hopefully I can, I can show the world that a little bit this year. As far as elders on the PGA Tour, is there somebody that you've gravitated towards that you've learned a lot from? And if so, what is it that you've learned from that person? Davis has been a big soundboard for me at the start. And um, I mean, he was always someone that I felt comfortable talking to. But honestly, I mean, Tiger and Phil both have been great to me. I mean, played a lot of practice rounds and games with Phil. And he's always been very complimentary toward me and will send me nice texts in my first couple of years if I played well, which, you know, as a rookie and a 21 or 22 year old, that's a big deal. I've been very fortunate and, and happy to get to know Tiger pretty well the last, uh, you know, last half year to a year. And, and I, I really talked to him a long time about Augusta. He is someone that I've been able to kind of bounce things off of and, and just try to ask questions just because I, I want to surround myself with the greatest and I want to surround myself with people that have done great things just because they're going to be able to give me great feedback. If you and I come back here at the end of this year and I say to you, it was a great year because you're going to answer it how? I want a major, for sure. That's it. In terms of a great year, I think I'm ready to win majors. Yeah, obviously, if I go win five or six or seven times, just regular events, then yeah, that's, that's awesome. Um, so, I mean, I guess I, it'd be hard to not call that a great year, but I would just call that probably a really, really good year. But to be a great year, I, I think it would need to have a major championship. 2017 marked the 20-year anniversary of Justin Leonard's open win at Royal Troon. Leonard stopped by to reminisce about his triumph and revealed the impact Barbara Nicholas had on him entering the final round. It's been 20 years now since your 97 Open Championship win at Royal Troon. First of all, does that is that sentence uh, one that makes sense? Is it hard to believe for you that it's been 20 years since it that? Is, it is hard to believe, 20 years. In fact, somebody caught me off guard with that yesterday. And I said, 20 years since what? And then I realized what they were talking about. Um, it's crazy that it's been 20 years. Uh, and I, I'm not going to play this year. I'm going to be working for Golf Channel and NBC. Um, but it, it was so much fun last year playing again at Troon. Mm -hmm. um, not saying that I won't play somewhere in the future, um, but really just wanting to focus on you know, being on this side of things for, for the next couple of years. I was going to say, what was, it, what was it like for you going back even last year at, at 19 years and getting back to see some of those same restaurants and see that same course and some familiar faces? Did that, did that jog the memory bank for you? Well, it did, and, and it was um, very special. The, the members at Royal Troon gave Todd Hamilton and Mark Kelkovecki and myself honorary memberships on Tuesday night. And so we had a great party within, a, a smaller party within the clubhouse, and then went over to the members' tent afterwards and uh, really got to relive all three of our victories there through Q&A and just telling stories with, with the other members. And uh, so being able to become a part of the Open Championship and especially where the three of us were able to, to win, uh, it was a very special week and then you know, culminated in that night. Um, just a lot of fun going through those stories and, uh, and hearing some of the members' stories about where they were and what they, you know, kind of witnessed was happening at the time. Looking back 20 years ago, is there uh, a memory or, or a specific moment that sticks out to you from any time during that week that, that when you think back to 97 at Royal Troon, what sticks out to you? In, well... Funny that you should ask. The thing that sticks out really was a conversation I had with Barbara Nicholas yeah. on Saturday night. I hadn't played so well on Saturday, and I was still I was five back uh, in the next to last group. But it was a disappointing day, and uh, I was in the restaurant licking my wounds a little bit. Um, and Mrs. Nicholas came over from across the restaurant, uh, and she you know kind of leaned over my table and she said, you know, you can still win this tomorrow. Um, you just need, good, you good just vote need of confidence. To, you just need to go out and do it. And I thought, you know, for Mrs. Nicholas to take the time to come over and say that, um, obviously she knows much better than I do on how to win a major championship. <laughs> uh, and so it really changed my mindset. Uh, it caught me off guard for the first few minutes. And then 
the rest of the evening, I just thought about what I needed to do in order to get off to a great start. Um, and I really had the, the mindset of trying to go win the golf tournament, not lamenting uh, my third round, but really looking forward. And so that was a great lesson for me that I carried throughout my whole career um, of just it's time to shift gears. You can't help yeah. what's happened in the past. You try and learn from it and move forward. And um, so that whole mindset and adjustment in my attitude is, uh, I, I'm, I thank Mrs. Nicholas every time I see her for that conversation. So Sunday 65, you chased down Darren Clark and Jesper Parnovic. Was there ever a moment during that round where you stopped and thought, my goodness, I might actually win this golf tournament, or was it? Did you keep Did you keep the, the blinders on? I don't think I ever stopped and thought during that entire round of golf. Um, I didn't really know exactly where I was. Um, it, it's just like, relation, like Will, Will Ferrell, at old school. <coughs> you just kind of blacked out for five hours. And I did pop not. Up and they're giving you the trophy. No, I did not <laughs> black out for five hours. Then um, that's how you debate. Um, but I, I did. I, I wasn't really watching the leaderboards. Um, I got off to a really good start and made a bunch of birdies in the front nine, and, and I thought, why do I want to change my mindset now? Being five back, I had to go out and get up to a fast start. Uh, and so I just I, I decided at that point just to keep the, the pedal down, and uh, the back nine has a totally different character than the front, um, knowing that you know it gets much more difficult. Uh, it was a, the weather was good, but it was still... The back nine at Troon is more difficult than the front. And so um, really just kept that mindset of I'm just going to play my game and I'm going to enjoy playing with Fred Couples and I'm going to enjoy the atmosphere here. And just winning the tournament never really crossed my mind um, until I was walking off the 18th green. Until that point, I was just you know, trying to focus on the next shot or how I needed to play the, you know, the next hole. Just right was what was right in front of me. Uh, it really wasn't until walking off the green that I was knew or was concerned about winning the golf tournament. It seemed to work out. It worked, worked, out, out, very, worked well. out very well in that instance. Senior writer Rex Hoggard sat down with World Golf Hall of Fame member Larry Nelson to get his opinion about a 2016 article that coined the three-time major winner as the greatest golfer no one knows. Back in 2016, Golf Digest referred to you, quote, as the greatest golfer no one knows. And I'm not quite sure where they were going with that. I, I think it had to do with the Open being in Oakmont and obviously you having the history there. Does that maybe have something to do with the fact that you never got the call as a Ryder Cup captain, or is that unfair? Uh, I think, uh, you know, people don't really realize how the Ryder Cup captains are picked. I think that's the, the kind of the big thing. And, um, there was actually just one person that um, really picked the Ryder Cup captains for a number of years, and that was the executive director of PGA. The other, the other captain, the other people that they're there on the committee or whatever, the PGA president and maybe the executive guy or maybe the treasurer or whatever. But the, but the executive director of the PGA is one, the single person that actually had the most to do with picking. Uh, and, and I heard some of the things. Just to kind of tell you, um, when Lanny and I, when I turned uh, 95, I was supposed to be Ryder Cup captain. Mm -hmm. um, it was kind of the, the way it was. And Lanny came to me and says, how about me doing it in 95 and you going against Seve in 97 in Spain? Seve's going to be the captain in 97. And I said, you know, that sounds great. I mean, I, I think that's fine. So Lanny was the you Ryder You like the idea of oh, taking Seve on in Spain. In Spain, uh, captain to captain, that sounded great. And so, 95, Lanny, they let Lanny be captain in 95. Now, he's two years younger than me. So then 97 came around, and I was in Japan. I was in Tokyo. And come to find out that they named uh, Kite captain, uh, and not me. Uh, so it went against everything that was done in 95. I would have been the 95 Ryder Cup captain. Um, I would have been a Ryder Cup captain. Um, but we decided, to, you know, so... Things changed over that two-year period of time. Nobody ever talked to me. Nobody ever let me know. It was just I just assumed that that was the way it was going to be because that's what we decided in '95. So, but not knowing, I think you know, it's kind of funny. Winning the U.S. Open at Oakmont, uh, it finished on Monday morning, not Sunday afternoon. Which, you know, you just kind of yeah, okay. If it had finished on Sunday afternoon, then probably more people would have known that I won the U.S. Open. 
instead of 10 o'clock on Monday morning, you know. Um, the USGA, I think if you go and look uh, at the 1983 US Open, there's not a video on the 1983, even though there is one for everyone else. They kind of added it on because of uh, actually Ram's advertising when they cut out all the stuff out of there. There was not enough tape to actually make one on its own, so it's actually added on to the 82. So I, it's just circumstances, I think, as much as anything else. But, um, you know, I'm very happy. Um, <laughs> I went to eat at a little restaurant last night, and yeah, there was a group of people there that knew who I was. So it's not like I'm in total anonymity, um, but probably not as popular. And also, Rex, at the same time, I won my three majors in a time where people were winning four, or Nicholas was winning 18. Uh, you, know, you had it all these. It was a tough people. class. It was a tough class. Had I done it this day and time, won three majors and had the record I had in the Ryder Cup. Uh, in this day and time, I'd be a national hero, you know. But back then it was just, oh, he didn't win as much as Trevino or Nicholas or, you know, Raymond Floyd or, you know, Hellerin won three opens and then you had Crenshaw and uh, Curtis Strange coming out, you know, right around the same time. I mean, huge, huge college record and that kind of stuff. So, I mean, I was just in there in that kind of thing. A trivia question is, there were four guys that won three or more majors in the 80s. Nicholas, Ballesteros, and Tom Watson, who was the fourth. Yeah. So, uh, so I was among four of probably the greatest players that had ever, you know, ever played this game. Uh, and I was just the, you know, I, I was the other guy. Rich Lerner sat down with PGA Tour Commissioner Jay Monahan to talk about his goals for the 2017 season, as well as the tour's relationship with President Donald Trump. Commissioner, Happy New Year and congratulations. Rich, Happy New Year to you. Great to be with you. Uh, thanks for being with us. Jay, what are your goals for the uh, first year as commissioner? Uh, you know, I think that um, we have the, the, beautiful, the beautiful part of this transition process that we went through over the past two and a half years had a lot of time, particularly over the last six months, to execute on a transition plan that Commissioner Fincham and I had built. So the goals are, are really, it always starts with people. So for me, it's really about listening to our players, our fans, uh, our tournaments, our sponsors. And I think from that will come the growth, uh, not only of the PGA Tour in our business, but hopefully the game. Um, I think if we all work together to grow this game, then everybody will, will flourish, and uh, we're particularly focused on that. Toward that end, you and your team took a trip out to Silicon Valley, visited companies like Google and Facebook. Why'd you make that trip, and what'd you learn? Well, we made that trip because you always want to understand trends and you understand, particularly from technology, how things are evolving and, as a result, how you can better serve your fan. And we work very closely with uh, NBC Golf Channel on that front day in and day out. But for us, it was a chance to get away from the office, meet all the top firms, understand their perspective on the PGA Tour and the game of golf, and from that, take some lessons forward. Uh, we really learned a lot about the value of our, of our players, uh, and the way they relate to fans, and we're really pushed to create more content. What do you love uh, about your star players, this young crop, Jason Day, Rory McIlroy, Jordan Spieth, Dustin Johnson, Hideki Matsuyama? Well, I, there's an awful lot I love, um, but I think that first and foremost, um, it's their relatability, how purposeful they are um, as individuals, and how purposeful they are as it relates to their responsibility to the game. Uh, and, to, and to inspiring future generations. And they all come forward, have come to the PGA Tour incredibly well prepared. They handle themselves exceedingly well. They're candid, they're frank, they're open. Uh, and I think that is gonna serve us, ex serve us extremely well as we go forward. Uh, at one point there was a thought that maybe golf could uh, crack the big three in American uh, sports, baseball, basketball, football. It, is that realistic still for golf? 10, 15 years down the road to crack that? I, I absolutely think it is. Why? And I, well, I think you have to look at, I, mean, I actually think that in some respects we are. It depends on which part of the game you're looking at. So it's not but just if, a niche sport. In, in Rich, we've got 24 million people playing golf in our country, 23 million playing basketball, 17 million uh, playing tennis, and I think 13 million playing baseball. Now their numbers, basketball and baseball, exceed golf globally. But I think that that's an opportunity for us. Uh, and I think with these stars that we have, how relatable they are, 
with our ability to tell their stories uh, more consistently and more directly as we go forward, I don't think there's anybody that we can't compete favorably against. Jay, how's the PGA Tour's relationship with President-elect Trump, and why would it matter? Uh, you know, I think that we um, are, are, you go back and you have to look at, at our history with the Office of the Presidency. And, and we have, we've been very fortunate in that we're coming off a string of presidents that have loved this game. And uh, that's going to continue with President-elect Trump. And when he takes office, he will probably be the most proficient golfer uh, that, that's ever sat in the office of the presidency. And he's certainly the most golf knowledgeable. Uh, it's well known that we had a great partnership with, uh, with the Trump Organization in Miami at Trump Doral. Um, we wanted to stay there. Uh, the reason that we did not stay there is because we couldn't find a sponsor. And I was personally involved in that pursuit for close to 18 months and am disappointed to this day that we weren't able to deliver. Um, but we, as we look forward, I think January 18th, we look to the President's Cup. Uh, we're excited to have President Trump uh, participate, hopefully be there on site or in whatever manner he can. Uh, and we look forward to finding a way to continue to work uh, with the Trump Organization. PGA Tour winner Jim Herman has a unique relationship with President Donald Trump, and he joined the Golf Channel podcast to share the influence the president has had on his golf career and if he minds being known as the Trump guy. Well, you can't scan the uh, news headlines these days without stumbling across the word Trump. Uh, certainly you have a unique uh, relationship with Donald Trump, now President Trump, uh, you know, with your time at Trump National Bedminster. You, you still sport Trump logos on your bag and on your shirt at, at PGA Tour events. So what, uh, what was that relationship like with him before, the, before president, even before presidential candidate Trump? And uh, how impactful was he in steering you towards a path in professional golf? Sure. Well, before, um, you know, I was just an assistant, assistant golf professional at one of his facilities at Trump National Bedminster. And, you know, I'm sure he's had a lot of good players come through, a lot of, a lot of, uh, um, assistants and head professionals are really good and um, but I don't know what was different uh, we played played golf um, early in 2006 in the in the spring and uh, we you know I must have made an impression right away and uh, he was very supportive of me and uh, after two years of playing a lot of golf with him it, you know he's just wondering why I'm still working there and not on tour and um, you know he was just giving me that extra motivation and I was able to uh, um, breakthrough finally that uh, that in 2007 at that Q school, but he's just always been there. Um, a big supporter of mine. Anytime I played well, um, I would have a uh, a note in the mail, or Mickey Gallagher would get it to me, and uh, just he'd write a little uh, um, congratulatory note and uh, on the article and send it to me, and just was a was a great supporter of mine and a good friend and. Uh, Obviously, our relationship stayed stayed pretty much the same since uh, he was a candidate and now the president of the United States, and uh, we still get together, uh, just not as much. Uh, he's obviously got a <laughs> busier job now, but um, uh, we did get get a chance to play uh, right before Christmas when he was uh, uh, before the inauguration. He invited me to the inauguration that day, and uh, that was quite an honor, and I was very humbled to receive it. And uh, we and wife and I really enjoyed our time in Washington uh, in mid-January, mid, uh, and um, I think it'll be the same going forward. Uh, look forward to seeing him uh, this summer, hopefully, and uh, during the um, Quicken Loans Championship in uh, D.C., so um, very, very happy for him, very proud of him, and uh, I think he's going to do a great job. A lot of guys, maybe not a lot of guys, but, but there are certain guys on tour that sometimes fight labels. I know that Justin Thomas went through a year or two basically known as Jordan Spieth's good buddy. Sam Saunders, currently known as Sam Saunders, comma, Arnold Palmer's grandson. Is there any part of you that, that doesn't want to get pigeonholed as Jim Herman, the, the Trump guy? Is that a concern at all? Um, I don't mind it at all. Obviously, um, you know, there's, there's the good and the bad with some things. You know, obviously he's... Um, Polarizing. A lot of people are not happy with uh, everything he does, but uh, you know, I still go back to my relationship as uh, with Mr. Trump as a uh, as.
as a friend and then all the people that I've met and been touched at, at his golf courses and uh, all a lot of the staff that still remain good friends of mine and uh, a lot of the members that still remain good friends of mine. So I wouldn't uh, – I don't mind that label or anything like that. Obviously, uh, the better I do, the more it comes up with my relationship with him. But uh, that's okay, and I'm fine with that. There is a lot more to – to me, Jim Herman, and then um, just the the Trump story, and uh, sometimes uh, we it would be nice that it, it does get out the other way. But uh, I am just fine with it um, being um, that Mr. Trump or President Trump is brought up anytime I play well. Eight-time PGA Tour winner Brant Snedeker joined the show and gave his take on how the city of Nashville embraced its hockey team as the Predators made their run to the Stanley Cup Finals and divulged how he attempted to get music sensation Carrie Underwood to throw a catfish onto the ice in Pittsburgh. It's been so much fun to see the city of Nashville get behind the team like, like everybody here has, the Predators. You know, the Predators have been here for over 20 years. They're kind of our, our hockey team. Um, and see the success. They've been good for quite a few years now. But see the success they've had in the playoffs this year, the way the city's kind of rallied around them. And uh, it's been fun to be a part of. You know, the arena's been unbelievable. Been in quite a few games here in the postseason. See it at each at each uh, uh, round get hot. I mean, louder and more crazy. And, and, and people um, coming downtown just to hang out outside the arena to watch these games. It's been fun to be a part of. And it gets you kind of excited about um, what Nashville's doing as a city and what the Nashville the Predators are doing as a team. So I uh, can't wait for game three tomorrow night. It's going to be, be a crazy atmosphere. And, uh, you know, everybody in Nashville has been kind of jumping on the bandwagon and having fun with watching these, uh, this team play as, as well as they have. Yeah, you've got to realize we, we, we have a bunch of sports crazy people here in this town. You know, obviously Tennessee Vols have been huge forever. Um, I grew up a Vanderbilt fan. Um, you, you can see it with Vanderbilt baseball when they won a national championship a couple of years ago. Um, you know, we were – there are people standing outside waiting, you know, scalp tickets trying to get to watch Daniel play regional baseball games. So um, this city is a, is a huge, has a huge fan base for sports. And, you know, the Preds have been um, unbelievable turnout in the last four or five years. But to have this run to stand the Cup Finals on a team that, you know, at the beginning of the year, everybody picked to be there. And throughout, you know, through injuries and, and other issues throughout the course of the year, we, we kind of had a, a mediocre year for them barely make it to the playoffs and make this kind of Cinderella run of the Stanley Cup. It's been unbelievable. It's kind of brought everybody out of the woodwork and, and really um, energized the city to get behind a, a bunch of great guys who handle, do stuff the right way, who kind of play the way Nashvillians like their sports team, play tough hockey and, and play the right way. So it's been fun to watch them and, and, and see them be successful as they have. And um, Nashville's really, really grown a lot in the last 20 years since the Preds got here. And all these new influx of people have, have kind of taken – the Predators under their wings. They haven't been around. A lot of people that live here now weren't around when the Titans were really relevant and, and going to playoffs every year and going to Super Bowl. So this is their first taste of real, you know, premier sporty events at its finest. And uh, hockey fans, as you know, are crazy. So it's been fun to see that atmosphere kind of build up in Bridgestone Arena to where now, you know, they're talking about, two, you know, $1,500 wanting to get to the front door tomorrow night for the game. So uh, for, the, for a nosebleed seat. So it's just crazy to see all these people uh, get all in on the Predators. Well, Carrie Underwood uh, got things started. She sung the, the national anthem for the first home game against the Blackhawks. And for those that are unfamiliar, she's married to Predators captain Mike Fisher. But I saw on Twitter, did you pledge some money to charity if you can get Carrie Underwood to throw a catfish on the ice? Is that uh, accurate? We did, yes. We got something going for uh, game two in Pittsburgh. Uh, I think we got up to over $100,000 for charity of her choice if she were to put, go down and actually throw a catfish on the ice. One, it would have been unbelievable to see her do it. Two, like we thought there was no way they'd ever arrest Terry Underwood. So uh, <laughs> it'd, be a, it'd be a harmless crime. But uh, she, she probably wisely didn't do it, didn't want to be a distraction to, to, to you know, her husband and the team. But um, I thought about taking one myself. I, I thought better against it. But, you know, the catfish, the rally catfish is kind of taken over here in Nashville. We started doing it in 2003 um, when we played Detroit for the first time um, in the playoffs. And they were notorious for throwing octopi on the ice during the game. Um, so uh, the redneck version of that here in Tennessee is to throw a cat, catfish on the ice. So uh, we've kind of made it our own. It's kind of a, a tradition we have here at home ice. It's, uh, it's unique for sure. Listen, I grew up, when I was a kid in South Florida, when the Panthers went to Stanley Cup Finals, we were throwing rats on the ice, uh, not, yeah. not live, but whatever. Uh, catfish, you're definitely stepping up the game. So we shall see. <laughs> and I saw you had, you had your, your kids fishing for catfish, right, this, this week? I did, yeah. You know, my kids love fishing. So I, I, I had uh, thrown out fishing that day. I thought it would be funny to put it on Twitter and say I was going to take it up there to, <laughs> to, to, to Pittsburgh with me to put it on the ice. But uh, 
didn't do it, should have done it. Obviously, we lost the game. May, may, may I, I take somewhat of the blame on that one. But, uh, yeah, my kids love fishing, getting outdoors, and so that's something we love to do as a family. World Long Drive champ Maurice Allen is never short on words, and he joined the podcast shortly after winning the Mile High Showdown and shared why he thinks long drivers are the best athletes in the world and how he channeled his inner Ric Flair to draw more attention to the long drive circuit. So a couple weeks back at uh, Clash of the Canyons, you made some comments that you feel like, I see the smile on your face, <laughs> you feel like long drive players are the best athletes in the world. So you're sticking, you're sticking to your guns, I'm right? I'm sticking to it. I'm going to stick. Well, the reason why is because if you look at your list of long drive competitors, especially the top guys, they all have played other sports. Uh, Dan McIntosh was a baseball guy. Justin James was a baseball guy. Bobby Bradley, another baseball guy. Uh, Tim Burke was a pitcher. Jeff Flagg, world champ, another pitcher, but he was with the Yankees. Um, and all these guys are at top levels. Will Hogue was a, another baseball guy. Jason Esslinger, who was here a few days ago, football linebacker. Trent Scruggs was a rodeo guy. <laughs> I mean, so, so the, the large list, and, and so that's the big thing, is that when you start saying athlete, it's not just they're all coming from baseball. You have some guys that are baseball, some guys that are football. We had a guy that was a bobsledder. We had, I mean, so track and field, and the list goes on and on and on, and you can find all these different ath athletic people all these different sports, and then they all come to this sport. And people say, oh, well, they, they weren't the top at their sport. Well, they all made it to the professional level, and for some reason or another, 90% of them were injured. They ended up leaving, and then they found long drive. So we have to talk about Ric Flair. Have to. We have to talk about it. The comments, the, the speech, everything. You had the world ready to run through a brick wall before <laughs> you even – hit a, a golf ball the other day. I think we've got the video here. We're going we're gonna to run it in a second. But uh, just talk me through your thoughts in channeling the Nature Boy. Uh, to me, when you think about it, as an ex-football guy, the woo is the number one sound that you hear when a DB hits a guy or yeah. when a linebacker hits a guy. It's just a natural reaction on the football field and in other sports when you do something. And uh, my, my, one of my training partners in Atlanta, his name's Michael Tucker. We call him Tuck. And we were hitting balls one day at the range, and I hit a ball, and he said, woo. I was like, no, no. And, and, and anybody who watches wrestling understands the whole um, Ric Flair thing. And they had this big thing where they were like, no, it's mine. Woo. And, and, and they were going back and forth, and it was awesome. And we did that. But when I was walking up to the – right before I walked up to the box, I got a text message from him and said, hey, if you win this match, give me two claps and a Ric Flair. And – it's ironic because my brother and I, my little brother Jamar and I have done that from the beginning of time. That's just always been us. And I think that's one of the things that's different and that I bring that's different to the sport is, you know, traditional golf, you know, somebody makes a, a long putt or they hole one mm -hmm. out. They don't get too pumped up. They don't get too amped up. They just tip their, you know, yeah. they're too cool. They tip the cap and throw a finger up or two fingers <laughs> in the air and everybody's there applauding. And, but I think that in today's world, people want that excitement. People want to know that, hey, if I did that, how would I react? I wouldn't act too cool. I'd run around. I'd and, and that's what you should do. You hit the ball 483, 485 yards. You should be able to jump up, down, and scream and yell because that's absolutely awesome, and that's what draws the people in. And Ric Flair is probably, if I had to go with it, uh, between him and Muhammad Ali, probably two of the best who have ever done it because – and you can all, and you can argue it back and forth, but they always backed it up. I mean, they were great showmen, but they always backed it up. Who sent you the text? Tuck sent you the text. Tuck sent me the text, yeah. so that's how it started. Right. And honestly, I would have never done it if I didn't get that text. All right, we got to listen to this now. We've, we've talked about it enough. I think we're gonna cue it up in the back. So here's Maurice Allen uh, channeling his inner Ric Flair. To the Rolex wearing, diamond ring wearing, kiss stealing, wheeling dealing, jet limousine riding, jet flying, son of a gun. And I got the hardest time holding these alligators down. Now give me two claps and a Ric Flair. Did that get you pumped up watching that again? Oh yeah, man. Yeah. That gets you it's it's like it's like you're getting ready to run through the tunnel in the football game. There you man. Go. But that's that's just that's something that I think that uh, Long drive can bring, and I understand the traditional stroke play game cannot do that. And that's, but long drive is something different. It's it's an adrenaline junkie sport.
NBC Sports announcer Mike Tirico spoke on an array of topics during his time on the Golf Channel podcast, and during one of our segments, he talked about Tiger Woods' dominance as well as why Phil Mickelson's greatness was taken for granted during Tiger's stellar career. All right, we did mention him earlier in this podcast, but I would like to circle back to one Tiger Woods. As we said, mm -hmm. you were you were on the, the call there at the 2000 Open at St. Andrews, but you've been... Uh, around many golf tournaments that, that Tiger has won over his career. We're not quite to the post-Tiger era yet. I think we're, everyone agrees we're, we're pretty close to it. So my question to you is this. Do you feel like we took Tiger for granted when he was in his prime? Hmm. Good question. I don't think we took him for granted. I think the end was a little is, and since it's in the process of, a little disappointing for some because they had already anointed him as the greatest golfer of all time. That was to me and still is Nicholas mm -hmm. because let's just, let's just talk in simple terms here. One of the things about golf is if you have an insurmountable lead, there's no mercy rule. You've got to finish the deal. Uh, so Jack played all 18 in terms of the majors he won. Tiger couldn't get there. Uh, Jack had periods where his dominance was the equivalent of Tiger's just happened in a different era. So uh, Tiger never got there, at least in my opinion, but he's incredibly close. Probably no argument for second if you take the air from you know, the war on here uh, to talk about modern golf. I think we didn't take him for granted because – he crossed over the sports line for pop culture, for conversations of uh, race, of athleticism, somebody who was the new era of the sport, somebody who was built up to us from a very, very, very young age and delivered the almost entire promise that was out there that he would be a great golfer and he would dominate the tour and win more majors than two, three, four Hall of Famers combined. Well, you can take like three or four Hall of Famers, put their career together in terms of wins and majors, and Tiger blows that away. Uh, so I think if there's anything we took for granted in the Woods era, it's how great Mickelson was and is. Mm -hmm. I don't think we took Tiger for granted. I think we just thought there was always going to be more. And when there wasn't five, seven, nine, ten years of more, it left us a little bit hollow. I think, if anything, when you look at 40-plus wins and all the majors that Mickelson has won, I think that's what we missed out on in terms of appreciation of greatness. I, I'd love to do this. I'm going to do this math at some point. The number of tournaments that Tiger and Phil entered, they were both in the field. And then you put their wins together, and something in the neighborhood of you know, almost 120, just under 120 wins together that they had. And that's probably, uh, let's just guess here, it's probably out of 350 tournaments that they were both in. So if they were both in a tournament for that stretch from, you know, if you want to go past, let's go when Tiger turns pro, because Phil doesn't have a ton of wins. He has some wins, but not a ton of wins. If we go from 96, Milwaukee, Hello World, mm -hmm. all the way through uh, you know, the last – yeah, all the way through Mickelson's last win. We, we, yeah. we could throw a window up there at Mickelson's last win. Uh, you, you're going to have something in the neighborhood of 350 events. I, I don't know, but those guys won a third of them. Yep. Now, talk about that. That's, that's two players who dominated the game, and Wood's dominance over Mickelson was so significant. You know, triple the number of majors, almost double the number of wins. Yeah, almost double the number of wins. Mm -hmm. And when, you, when I look at that, I don't think Mickelson got as much attention as Tiger did because there wasn't the crossover factor. So if, if we looked past anything, it's probably Mickelson's greatness during the stretch. And that's not taken away from Tiger's greatness. I think that was celebrated, appreciated, and I, for one, miss it because there was, there was nothing like the buzz of Tiger in the hunt in a big tournament. Jordan Spieth's performance at the 2017 Open will be talked about for years to come. I sat down with GolfChannel.com editorial director Jay Coffin in the moments after Spieth's win at Royal Birkdale to help put his torrid play into perspective following his victory at the 146th Open. It's been a couple hours, Jay, but we're still trying to 
wrap our arms around what exactly we saw unfold as Jordan Spieth gets his hands around the Claret Jug, perhaps in a different way than what we envisioned entering the day. Now this might this uh, this might be a short podcast because I I don't know how to explain it. I mean, we That's I why we, we pay use, you the big bucks. We pay you we, the big bucks. To come we up use with words it. for a living. Uh, we, we use our opinions and our thoughts for a living, and and I I don't know, man. I mean, we, you know, we kind of came here not knowing what to expect. Okay, you know, maybe, maybe he wins by five, by six, he runs away with it. Maybe it's close. I, I don't know that anybody thought what was going to happen would happen, and but but now that it did, though, it's awesome. It but is like like I was sitting here talking to Mercer Bags, well, with you know two holes to go where it looked like Spieth had one hand around the jug. And I said, man, I, I, a lot of these scenarios went through my mind coming into today, and this was not one of them, but this was probably the better. absolute, it was probably perfect. So I mean, much I'm better than perfect, anything that we could accomplish. Right? Like, I mean, like, perfect. Yeah. Like, like, he slayed all the demons. Like, he, he battled the ultimate demons. He coughed all over himself for the front nine and then did what he did on 13. And then went on that stretch for 14, 15, 16, 17. I mean, it had absolutely everything including a devastated Matt Kuchar. But it was it was riveting. True. We can get to Kuchar in a little bit, yeah. but I know I, I was speaking to Zach Johnson after his round, and he, it was for him it's kind of like choosing between your favorite kid because yeah, right. he is so close with speed, and he's also neighbors with Kuchar. And he, he said, I just want someone to win it. I don't want to see one of these guys lose it. And that was the point at which speed was in the midst of his front nine free fall. Right. So to see him come back, after the craziness of 13, which we can also address, it mm-hmm. deserves its own podcast. But, right. but the putts that he made on 15, 16, 17, Legend. Was absolutely unbelievable. That that yeah. putt on 15, go get that to, to Greller. <laughs> yeah, that's going to live that's in awesome. infamy. Yeah. <laughs> that was that was that was awesome. It, and it, you know, like we said, it had everything. It had missed putts. It had trial and tribulation. It had a near ace. Yeah. It had a it had a crazy eagle followed up by by birdies, and it had, you, you know, and it had a worthy guy in Kucher that was sort of there going toe to toe that just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, which a lot of people are going to find themselves against Jordan Spieth during during this era. But I just I, I just love everything about it. I love that that Spieth was just, I mean, to, to call him nervy would be an understatement he was a disaster yeah oh yeah i mean he was talking to him like he was a he was petulant for a long long time and he turned into tiger woods like like with with one single bogey putt on 13 <laughs> he he turned into tiger woods and then did what he did it's just it's incredible 2015 players championship winner ricky fowler took the time to join the podcast to discuss his personal highlight from the 2017 president's cup as well as why he has no immediate plans to learn how to pole vault. Welcome back from Mexico. Seemed like a, a productive and fun week. Thank you. Yeah, no, it was nice to come off of uh, you know, a little bit of a break, not playing a whole lot. Got to kind of travel the country a little bit, going to my homecoming at Oklahoma State. Got to go to Napa, have some good wine. To Went to my girlfriend Allison's homecoming in Berkeley, to mm-hmm. Scottsdale, and back. And I think I played... Five rounds of golf from President's Cup leading up to the tournament. So it was nice to be refreshed, ready to go play. And, uh, man, Mayakoba is a, a sweet spot. It's a good little spot to hang out. How much thought for you went into the plan of skipping the Asia events, passing up some, some lucrative purses and, and things like that, and then deciding to add Mayakoba? Kind of an, an unconventional approach to the fall schedule, but certainly one that you feel like is going to pay off down the rest of the season. Yeah, I just think it was kind of a, a, a good time to get some sort of an off-season or, you know, not necessarily that we're getting a whole lot of free time to just sit at home. Uh, like I said, with traveling to, you know, being home for the holidays, there's, there's still even stuff going on. Even when you're off, on. you're traveling. Yeah, yeah, even when you're off, you're still hopping around, but um, just not playing as much. So I think this was really the, the first time that um, made sense, uh, the first time we've actually been able to do it. I feel like every year there's been some sort of traveling abroad in, mm-hmm. in the fall so to be able to, to stay inside the the u.s or north america yeah. include mexico so it's, um, a, short, it's a direct flight I, it, short was, trip. it was an hour and 30 there yeah. from south florida so it's it's close enough yeah. um it just it made it to where you know not doing any of the long trips um you know yeah those those tournaments are great a lot of good world ranking points obviously some, some great purses you're playing against you know, it's uh, in China, Shanghai. You're playing against a, an amazing field in the WGC, but um, you know you gotta 
pick and choose your battle sometimes as far as, you know, it's, it's nice to get some time at home or travel a little bit and mm -hmm. have some free time. Um, the, the meat of our season really being, you know, you have to really look at kind of the, the June to September. Um, it's really, you know, obviously starting in, in the January time. Augusta's pretty special in April, but the jam-packed part of it being that June to, yeah, like I said, September. Um, and with next year, Ryder Cup overseas, um, and then this year with leading up to playoffs, President's Cup, I just felt like it was a, a nice time to, to relax, um, get things going really in January yep. and, and you know make sure we can uh, pick up right where we left off. Is it a shock to your system when I tell you this is your ninth season on tour? No, I'm still in single digits. Um, I'm well aware of where I'm at, but um, yeah, it's it's been fun. It's gone it's gone very quickly. Um, Is there an adjust, any adjustment of, of I don't know about goals, but just perception where you feel like there's got to be some point where you wake up and, and you're not a rookie or you're not in your first couple of years on tour and you realize that you're now very much entrenched in the veteran status. Yeah, I think especially once you get to that double digit, you're you're for sure a vet. So. Uh, I may still be trending that way. You enjoy one last lap here? Yeah, I guess one final season as an on-vet. Um, it's, it's really cool to be in a spot where, you know, I'm able to, to help out some guys coming on tour or, you know, any guys coming for advice. It's, it's fun to, to be in that role, I guess. I've always liked to, you know, be around guys that uh, I could learn from and to, you know, potentially be in a spot where guys maybe look to me to, to learn something. It's cool. It's special. Um, I think that's all a part of, you know, being on tour and, and kind of handing down to the next generation. Um, I enjoy it, so it's cool. What was your personal highlight from the President's Cup at Liberty National? Uh, my personal highlight, I think when JT thanked me for, for hitting the fairway every time <laughs> off the first tee. Um, it's a tricky little shot from down in that, that chamber that they built. That's, that's the hardest tee shot on the golf course, and yeah. for it being the first tee shot, uh, especially when we had some of the windy conditions, um, it was it was not not fun or easy. Um, being able to have the, the three presents there on the first tee, um, that was that was pretty cool. But I think getting to play with with JT, one of my best friends out there, um, and to, to have some success, um, that was, that was probably the highlight. What's your top uh, sports event as a fan that you've attended? Um, well, for me, growing up in action sports, growing up riding, racing, um, supercross or dirt bikes. Um, so supercross for me is, is my favorite to, to be around, attend. I have a lot of good buddies that are still riding and racing. Um, so for me, being back in that arena and being with the guys and, and watching them do their thing, that's, that's my number one. Uh, and last one before I let you go, your girlfriend, Allison, world-class pole vaulter. Have you ever pole vaulted yourself? I have not attempted to pole vault yet. Has she tried to convince you? No, no. I, she's she's very conscious of making sure I stay healthy. Um, it's not that she doesn't believe that I couldn't do well at attempting it. I've, I've carried a pole. Um, okay. Obviously, we do do um, you know a lot of workouts together from sprints and um, some work in the gym to you know kind of crossing what she does, what I do in the gym, and um, so it's fun to have a, a good training partner. And I feel like I've helped her too maybe uh having a training partner um but no no uh immediate plans to attempt pole vaulting okay um, that's fair I'll, I'll stick to carrying the pole for now back in april golf channel premiered a documentary on 18-time major winner jack nicholas entitled jack i sat down with frank nablo and brandel chambly to get their thoughts on what allowed jack nicholas to separate himself from his contemporaries as well as jack's lasting legacy on the game of golf I feel like there's no shortage of topics that you and I could sit and, and, and go back and forth on here, but I want to talk to you today about Jack Nicholas. Certainly he's a uh, person that's in the forefront of our sport, and, and especially at a time like this with the Golf Channel documentary of Jack uh, coming out to just really look back on his life in his career. So I'll start big picture. When I say to you, Jack Nicholas, free association, what, what term or what thought comes to mind for you? 18. Uh, it's golf. Uh, I've always thought um, that number being synonymous. We were right, reminded this year, the Australian Open tennis, where Roger Federer got to 18, even tennis players were bringing up Jack Nicholas's name. There's just something symbolic about the fact that he has 18 majors, there's 18 holes in golf. Matter of fact, I even tried to pitch a show at the Golf Channel um, 
when Tiger Woods was, was getting fairly close to 14 majors, I just thought it would be evergreen and it would also document his life. But you'd probably do it back to front. You'd ask all the people he beat to try and get their perception. You know, we've been lucky with the advent of the Golf Channel of seeing every single one of Tiger Woods' majors. But a lot of people don't remember Jack Nicklaus, the way in which, in the style in which he beat his, beat the rest of the field. For sure. And that actually bridges into my, my second point is that when you look at it and you have your, your analyst hat on and you take a look back at Nicholas's career, what is it? Was there, is there a single trait or a, a skill or ability that allowed him to separate from the field time and time again? There were several, but I think you've got to start between the ears. The, the best players have something that, that, ev that everybody else doesn't, and, and that's that uh, innate belief that they can get the job done. Uh, I, I'm a great fan of Tom Weiskopf, and he told me firsthand of the Ryder Cup story that, that gets brought up every now and again. They were teammates. They were playing best ball. I don't know who they were playing against, but it was uh, Great Britain and Ireland in those days. And um, Weiskopf had about a 10-footer, and Nicholas had a 15-footer. Uh, they're both for birdie and they're both to win the hole. And uh, Nicholas turns to Weisskopf and says, pick it up, I've got this. <laughs> and Weisskopf thought that he'd misspoken. So he looks at him again and he says, no, pick it up, I've got it. And in Weisskopf's word, he said, I've never rooted against Jack so much, but I almost wanted him to miss it so that he would learn that you can't think like that. And lo and behold, Nicholas knocked it in. And I think- That it, feels like a Patrick Reed story, I'm not gonna lie. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> Well, I think when Patrick gets 18 majors, we'll yeah, tell exactly. the story the exactly. same way. Yeah, but, yeah. but the, the proof is always in the pudding. That he got the job done that way. Even when he finished second, uh, the one that comes to mind, uh, Turnberry against, uh, you know, against Watson. Um, you know, Watson was still forced to make birdie. Hits a great seven iron and shot close because Nicholas, when he looked like out of it, somehow believed that he could get the ball on the green when he thrashed it out of that gorse bush. And then from 30, 40 feet away, um, he did the unthinkable. Uh, make the putt just to force that question mark through somebody, another player's head. Clearly there's, there's a bit of an age gap between you and Jack Nicklaus, but there was a slight overlap there as you're coming on as beginning your professional career. Jack Nicklaus was, was in the sunset of his career. Was there any sort of overlap between the two of you among the professional ranks? Do you have any chance to, to tee it up next to him? Yeah, the, the first time I played with him was in the Sarazen World Open. I was the defending champion in Atlanta. Matter of fact, I went on to win that, that, that week, but um, yeah, when you go in the locker room, it's all alphabetical. So having a surname that started with the letter N, it was like Nicholas or Nobolo or Norman. So I would get to sit and change my shoes. So I would rub shoulders in a lot of the major championships. And, and I've told the story on air a lot. I remember coming in one day and there was virtually nobody else in the locker room changing my shoes. And he looked at me and said, what's up? And I said, I feel really nervous. And he goes, isn't that great? And you know, it was just a, like one sentence and off he went. And, and you learn so much just when you get to rub shoulders or chat or even if it's a hello. And then in referencing the Sarazen, we would get to have dinner with Gene Sarazen, about 12 of us. Uh, there were, you know, Payne Stewart was still alive in, in those days and, and, and dinners were great because you'd just sort of soak up what you'd hear. But um, I didn't play with him that much and obviously I didn't play with him until he was in his 50s. But he still had that ability to get the job done. Uh, he might have lacked for a little power. You don't expect that out of a 50-year-old frame. But you could see every now and again, he'd pull a shot from the top draw and you'd shake your head and you'd go, yeah, you've still got magic. Speaking of still got magic, what was your reaction as a, as a professional at that point in your career when he did what he did at Augusta in 1986? I, I didn't think it was possible. Um, I, I was very heavily involved in golf. I turned professional and matter of fact, you know, I was born in 1960. Jack Nicklaus was born in 1940, so you know, I always thought 20 years apart, that type of thing. So you focus, because as a kid growing up, he was the standard bearer, and he just kept getting better and better. And then it looked like he had gone, and like a lot of athletes do, they just disappear. You don't expect them to keep playing. So uh, to win, to win you know, 25 years later after his first major championship, his son on the bag, Jackie, who I've met and, and know, um, even the... <laughs> I mean, the calls when he and Jackie are talking on 16 and, uh, you know, Jackie, Nicholas hits the tee shot and Jackie goes, be right, and Jack turns to him and goes, it is. <laughs> um, you know, it's things like that, that they might appear cocky to some people, but it's just who he was. I mean, he had a belief that how a shot should be hit, and when he hit it properly, he expected a good result. And, and of course, too, when he bared down on, on 17 and made the putt, um, there's shots that you remember. And, you know, Seve, I, I, I'm a big fan of, of Biasteris, and, and I talked to the late Biasteris, and when he saw the name, Biasteris was coming down 15, the famous four-iron shot he hits in the lake, 
and he looked up and he saw the one name that would probably even affect a player of that magnitude, which was Nicholas. And, and Seve hit probably the worst shot ever he's ever hit in his career. Did the same to Norman. So um, it was more than a ripple. You know, it was like an earthquake. The tremors just went through, not just Augusta National that year, but the golf world that year. Brandel, we're talking Jack Nicholas, the biopic, of course, as you know, coming out on Golf Channel after the Masters. So I want to start big picture. What do you see as Jack's lasting legacy in the game of golf? You know, in 140 characters or less, right? In 140 <laughs> character class, yes, I can yeah. do it okay. uh, in what? Is that uh, five, five letters? Letter. Class. You okay. You know, he was a class uh, all by himself as a player. And uh, I was just talking to John Feinstein over here. And it was one of the things earlier today, I was talking to Ron Green. Before that, I was talking to Dave Shedlowski. Uh, Dave, of course, has written a couple of books uh, on Jack Nicklaus. And that's the word that just keeps coming up time and time again. Um, his, his golf is perhaps the greatest golf uh, anybody's ever seen. But like Arnold Palmer, he always had time for everybody. He was always appropriate. He wasn't effusive, but he was appropriate and classy. Uh, he was a gentleman. And, uh, you know, he was my favorite player to ever watch play the game. And the little that I got to know him, uh, because I was represented by his company, I did wear his clothes, and I did get to go uh, to his house a few times. And one night, uh, I got to spend just a few hours he and I talking. Um, you know, a lot of times your your heroes will let you down, <laughs> uh, and he was everything I imagined him to be: sharp, to the point, concise, uh, informed on every topic, and. Uh, and, and as good as he was, he was humble, too. Yeah. I mean, he was incredibly humble. Uh, you know, I asked him once at dinner, who was the greatest driver of a golf ball he ever saw? And I thought he would either say himself or Ben Hogan, because clearly they were the two greatest drivers of a golf ball ever. Um, and he said, Dave Thomas. And at the time, we were at dinner with my roommate in college, his name was Paul Thomas, but his father was a great Welsh golfer by the name of Dave Thomas, who had lost by one shot to Jack at the 66 Open Championship at Muirfield and had lost a playoff to Peter Thompson in 59 at the Open Championship. But Dave would have been a very obscure player in the United States. Mm -hmm. uh, and he said, Dave Thomas, not me, not Ben Hogan, Dave Thomas. And then he went on to tell about a few drives that he had hit. Um, you know, but I am currently reading Jack's autobiography with uh, Herbert Warren Wynn is the, uh, you know, the, uh, the ghost, the uh, co-author, so to speak. And he talks about getting paired with Ben Hogan at the 60 U.S. Open and playing 36 holes with him on the last day and how he was the greatest shot maker he'd ever seen. So again, Jack was effusive in praise of his peers and other players and uh, always humble when you asked him about his uh, own talents. When you look back at his playing record as a whole, do you put, give more credence to specific uh, events and accomplishments, I mean, obviously outside of the 18 majors, or do you see it as the biggest thing being his longevity and the ability to do what he did for so many years across, a, across uh, the entire career? The answer to that is yes. <laughs> uh, because you can't talk about Jack without talking about how he started and how he ended his career. Uh, longevity is uh, the greatest test of anything, an idea, a government, a relationship. It is longevity. You know, how long um, um, did they endure in the game and how long were they successful at the highest level? 24 years is the greatest span between major championships of anybody. Mm -hmm. Is it coincidence that the greatest major champion of all time had the greatest span? Uh, you know, that's what it takes to accumulate 18 major championships. Um, you know, he was. Uh, somewhat of a different golfer in 1986 than he was in 62. Um, but he still relied on great long irons, uh, power and accuracy. Uh, he was just more powerful earlier in his career. Um, so, you know, when I think about Jack, I think that he was a lot like Tiger Woods uh, in that he could far outdistance himself off of the tee than his peers. And he could, with trajectory and spin and course strategy even further distance himself but it is ultimately his longevity that I think is his greatest legacy.
That'll do it for this special best of 2017 edition of the Golf Channel podcast. If you'd like to hear any of these clips in their full episode form, you can subscribe to iTunes or Spotify or visit golfchannel.com slash podcast. I'm your host, Will Gray. We'll see you in 2018. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash credit card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn 2% cash rewards on what you want, like season tickets to watch your favorite team, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like paying for parking. That's the beauty of the Active Cash credit card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash credit card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash.